we, we talk about the numbers a lot. Um, you know, there's 25 potentially million people. I mean, it's an estimate in our city. And to think that a whole town, you know, maybe 30, 40,000 people in this one small area, you can walk around that area for days and you won't find one believer. Mm. You know, you walk up to people on the street, like you all experience, and these kids had never even heard who Jesus was. Um, it's just hard to even really comprehend that. And it's hard for us to even know how we fit into this and how are we going to even have an impact here. Like, that was one of the things we struggled with. It was like, hey, God, like, what do we do? Like, what am I actually doing here and how am I supposed to put a dent in this? I mean, right now we say that there has to be 15 churches planted every day of 50 people just to keep up with the population growth in our city. Michael, first of all, thank you for uh, sitting down with us uh, here in South Asia. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time. And um, I just want to go back to uh, really the start of uh, God's call in your life and uh, how it all began. Um, I'm a small town kind of guy from Kentucky. Um, I was blessed with an amazing family that really um, drove the gospel in my life. And uh, once I entered middle school, I was actually at a camp, and during that camp, uh, there was a pastor there one of the last nights, and he asked, anyone who feels the call to ministry, please step forward so we can pray for you. Now, as a sixth grader, I don't think I fully understood what that meant, but for some reason, God was taking on my heart to go up there. Uh, I couldn't really explain why. Um, still to this day, I can't explain why, but I, I went forward anyways the potential of going overseas continued to come up in my life. Um, through reading um, the Word, through seminary classes, and through reading different books, God really began burning my heart. I also started praying that the Lord would give him a burden for the nations, and actually kind of didn't tell him that, but was just praying that, you know, that like, Lord, you've given me that desire, and um, I know that you've given me it for a reason. And so we continued just to push forward, and one obstacle after another would happen, and God would just take it down. And so about 90% uh, through the process, we just knew, like, okay, this is what God's called us to do. I'm just curious, when you first kind of arrived here, uh, what was that like? Tell me about that. So first of all, you're just completely exhausted <laughs> because we, we took a nonstop flight um, all the way to South Asia, get off the plane, and everyone's told us and everybody's warned us that it's just a really attack on your senses. So the sights, the smells, um, the sounds, everything is just kind of overwhelming. The um, first week that Michael and I were here, all we ate was peanut butter and jelly because <laughs> we didn't know what to cook or, you know, there's no ovens. All there is is like a little toaster oven and all you have is a gas stove. Seeing so many people, I mean, that was one of the hardest things for me is just getting over the amount of people that live here in such a concentrated area. It was, it was hard to comprehend. Traffic and trying to get through the grocery store, you know, trying to push a cart and getting hit by five other carts as you're trying to get through the aisle. And um, I also am love cleanliness, kind of an OCD person. And so seeing trash all over the road all day, being, you know, coming home and having dirt all over your feet, stuff like that, even though they seem kind of silly to other people, are kind of a big deal for me. Tell me a little bit about how he, how he works through you and, and the work. Yeah. So we have uh, a lot of opportunities here um, to meet with pastors and local churches already established here in the city. Um, we meet with them and then begin discipling them and training them on what it means to multiply churches. We want to see South Asians reach South Asia and then the nations. And so just getting to spend time with even just right now, two individuals who um, were just giving small you know, snippets of truth and then seeing them go and be obedient with it. And so our goal is really just to kind of put them above us and really pour into them and uh, help them understand that you don't have to have a special degree um, you don't even have to be able to read to go and make disciples. Like, you're just called to go. As a disciple, you're called to go and make disciples of all nations. What is it that you would say God has kind of taught you during that period now True. in your life? We're just ordinary people that happen to move overseas to South Asia. Um, this, this is our home right now, um, and, and this is where we feel God has called us to be. We're finite human beings, you know, and, and we rely on the Lord for 
we're everything, every breath, every skill that we are doing, every point in ministry. And so um, when I'm realizing how weak and um, just low and tired that I am is when God is going to be glorified the most because you can, you can move overseas, you can live here, you can do life here, and, and, but all with his help. I like Michael's quote when he said, we're going to put them above us. Now, when you hear that, you think immediately, that's an awesome thing to do. And we know how hard that is ourselves, even if it involves people that are like us. Imagine living that out with people who are totally different than you. And Michael and Aubrey, no doubt, when they moved to South Asia, met hundreds of people who were not like them in any way, at least on the external, the outside, right? And that's not that hard to understand because the world is much flatter now. It's smaller. And you meet people that are really different than you every single week, for sure every month. Maybe 30, 40 years ago, that wasn't quite as common. But today, with the way the world is just integrating, the globe is just really small in some sense. I mean, you meet people that are really different than you. They're just not like you. And could you, and could I say, could we say, we'll put them above us. We'll live based on God's values and not our own externals. Could we do that? That's a big challenge, isn't it? The truth is, and let's be even more realistic, we see people and meet people who are different than us, even without our own church. (coughs) In this room this morning, there are people here who are different than you. I don't mean just by race. That's true too, but economically uh, and what they like and don't like. There's just people who are different. How do you react in those moments to people who are different than you? How do you respond? What decisions do you make? And, and what will you do? And Those kinds of questions, I think, are answered by James in chapter 2 of his small five-chapter epistle. So will you turn there, James chapter 2? Let's talk about how we react and deal with situations and people that are different and how we can avoid partiality because there's a definite problem with it. While you're locating that chapter, I'd just like to remind you that the God who wrote this Bible has revealed to us His overarching passion, and that is that His glory be made known among the nations. And it's our joy at First Family to do what? Make his passion our mission. Are you there in James 2? All right. We're going to read these first 13 verses. We're going to answer the inherent question in the title of the message, which is the problem with partiality. We're going to actually define that today by looking at three sections in these 13 verses, bringing out two, I'll call them observations or strong suggestions, And then we'll kind of settle on one take-home truth. I will take a couple of questions today, all right? So if you have a question or two, be sure to text those in. The number's on your study guide. We'll try to take those live in the service today. I only take two, however. And then I would encourage you, in tandem with this message, stop by our Facebook page or our website. We released a podcast on the law. Now, you may say, Todd, why on the law? No, not the American law, not the speed limit and those kind of things. Uh, the law, God's law, the Ten Commandments and all that sur- surround that, uh, it's called different things. Two of the things the law is called are mentioned in this text. It's called the royal law. It's also called the law of liberty. And so sometimes when we read about God's law, we have a lot of questions like, how does that interact with us today? Does it apply? Are we under it? Are we not? I have all these mixed uh, opinions. So because it's a big topic, we released a podcast, Pastor Chris, myself, Pastor Carlos, and more, and I think Joe may have been in there as well, our, our church planner for Utah, and we just kind of talked about the Christian and the law, God's law. So go by and check that out. I won't spend a lot of time on that topic because we did on that podcast, but that's going to work in tandem with this message as we look at this situation called the problem with partiality, and James uses the law to kind of make some of his points here, all right? So three sections. Two suggestions, one truth. Can, you, can we like three, two, one? Let's roll. You ready? Here's what he says in these 13 verses. I'll just kind of read through them section by section. He says, first of all, in the first section, verses 1 through 4, 
My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So here's in a very clear manner what we should not do. He starts off with a negative, doesn't he? And James is kind of a um, put the cards on the table kind of guy. So he spells it out pretty clearly. Do not show partiality or most literally here, don't just receive the face. If you took the Greek language and you understood the words show no partiality, it would be that I'm just receiving your face. I'm not looking beyond it. I'm not looking inside it. I'm not looking anything around it. I'm just taking what I initially see at your face. It's an external approach to making a decision. It's an appearance-based estimation. The Greek language brings that out very well. We, we translate that show no partiality or favoritism. And then notice this phrase, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord of glory. I love this verse. Here's why. It really blends shoe leather theology. Excuse me. It really blends belief and behavior into what we're calling this series shoe leather theology. Because he says, look at the word show. It's an action verb, right? It's something we're not to do. But he then talks about something we believe. As we hold to this belief, as we hold to our system of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, here's three titles that refer to not only his humanity, but also his deity, his prophetic fulfillment as the Messiah, and then his ascension, the Lord of glory. So here's a a belief that we hold in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, and he says we're not to act in a way that would betray that. So that's just a perfect blend of our belief and behavior. He's saying we should not act in ways that are rooted and based in favoritism or partiality. He then gives an example of how this happened, I believe, in their time frame. Some believe this may have been referencing a judicial setting in which some people show up to be, let's say, judged or evaluated in a case of law. I don't believe that's really the meaning here. Most scholars and commentators believe this just speaks of that normal gathering of believers, probably in someone's home, by the way. And so the reason I hold to that view or see it that way is because the, the, the idea of the, if a man wearing gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, the idea is that he's unexpected. Like, oh, look who showed up today. If you have a judicial setting, you're probably not going to have an unexpected visitor in that sense. So I don't, I don't think it's in this judicial setting. Some think that because of the use of the word law here. Um, but I think it's just more of this general gathering of those dispersed believers in someone's home. And he says in verse 2, a man wearing a gold ring of fine clothes, he comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And notice what happens. You see both of these men, he says, and you pay attention, you give consideration to the one who wears the fine clothing. And so, as a result, you say, sit here in a good place. So, you see what he has on, you receive his face, and you treat him differently. That's all that's happening here. Not hard to understand. But you say to the poor man, you stand over there. One guy gets a seat in a good place, the other guy gets the standing room only, right? And what has based, what has motivated these decisions is merely what he sees on the outside. That's what James is explaining. He says, when this happens, verse 4, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So when you receive the face only, when you make your decisions about people's value and worth based on only what you see on the outside, the Bible says that That's partiality, that's favoritism. But then he describes it in verse 4 by saying you're making distinctions among yourselves and you're actually a judge with an evil thought. Now, now let's explain that phrase because verse 4 gets deeper than verse 1. Verse 1 is a single word that says don't do what? Don't show partiality. But verse 4 tells us why we're doing that. Now think with me, stay with me, don't lose me. Look in verse 4, would you? You see the word distinctions? It comes from the same root word as the word doubt in verse 6 of chapter 1. Are you looking over there? It says that we're to ask in faith with no doubting. I want you to connect those two words. They're the same root word. Here's why. 
when we make a judgments on appearances only, we actually, according to verse 4, and the context would be this, we're, we're doubting what can happen among ourselves. We're, we're kind of segregating, compartmentalizing people based on what we see. And because we need to fix a problem or solve a situation or meet a need, we're thinking, well, they could never solve that problem because look at them. But man, he or she looks like they could, so I'll appeal to them to solve my problem. Now watch this. Here's the root issue. I'll appeal to them because they look like they can help me instead of trusting God. See, the passage really fits in with chapter 1 well. Remember, James is writing not with chapter divisions like we read it, okay? And if you connect all the dots, here's what's happening. Twelve tribes dispersed throughout a pagan area under persecution. James says, in, this, in the middle of this, ask God for wisdom in your trials. And trust me that I will give you that wisdom and meet your need. If you endure to the end, you'll be rewarded. I'll show you what I'm doing. And so the temptation was then in the middle of those trials as they meet different people to say, well, God's not really doing what he said he would do, I don't think. He's not coming through for me. But that guy over there, man, he's dressed to the hilt. He drove up in a nice chariot. He's got a nice set of horses. Yeah, let, let me see what he can do to help me in my situation. Does that make sense, guys? And so suddenly... Appealing to people based on what we think they look like, trusting people, making decisions about what they can do for us based on appearances is really an attack on God's ability to meet our needs. Because underneath all of their desires, underneath their, their actions, their favoritism, their partiality, was this, was this sense that, you know what, God's not going to meet my needs. I doubt God can do what he said, so I will categorize you, discriminate, and show partiality to try to get what I think I need. In that way, you're a judge with an evil thought. In other words, you're trying to get what you want, that selfishness, and you're doing it by doubting God and then distinguishing among the people based on appearances how you can get what you want. And so the illustration in verses 2 and 3 really describe the people in verse 4. That's how this happened. So we're to show no partiality. We're not to just receive the face only, but we're to hold on to our faith in Jesus Christ, make our decisions based on His values, not man's. And you say, How, why do you say that, Todd? Because verses 5, I think through 11, show us God's values. You might could say it like this. This second section, 5 through 11, shows us why we should not do verses 1 through 4, Okay. So verses 1 through 4 say, don't show partiality, because really what you're doing is you're doubting God. You're categorizing people to get your own way. Here's why we should not do that. I think he lists three reasons. I'll just give them to you briefly. Because it distrusts God, it contradicts His values, and it disobeys His word. Let me show where I find this. Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? In other words, you're, you're seeing the poor and thinking they've got nothing to, quote-unquote, offer you. God could never use them. Have you seen them? <laughs> and he's saying, don't you know that God has actually chosen the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. How had they dishonored the poor man? If you go back in the text, you'll see that verse 3 says that they made their decision based on what they saw, and they said, sit down on my feet or stand over there. In that way, they dishonored the poor man. And so partiality not only mistrusts God because it, it says, God, you can't meet my needs. I'll have to do that by finding the best person in the crowd. It also contradicts God's values because God honors and uses all people, not just those who are, from our perspective, wealthy. Look what he says in verses uh, 6, 7, continue on. He says, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by, the, by which you were called? Now let's pause here and say this about rich people. Because you may think, well, Todd, that's uh, putting all the rich people in a weird category here. Historically, what's happening here is this. The dispersed tribes, the Jews, were now living, many of them homeless, jobless, in a section of society with, with lots of Gentiles. 
lots of persecution happening. And so, because many of the Jews were driven out of their homeland, they had to find some kind of work. And what was happening was sometimes, not in every case, but in some cases, um, many of the Gentile employers, many of the pagans who owned businesses or ran uh, operations in that area, would employ the Jews at a very, very low, low pay rate. But some money is better than no money. They're thinking about how they can get their, their feet back under them, get some traction. And so often these Jews would, would accept some employment that was very harsh and very difficult. Historically, it's been reported that sometimes these pagan owners then would pay such a low rate that they could not meet their bills, the Jewish people, and then on top of a terrible job, they would go, then, go in and take their stuff as payment. So it's kind of a, a scheme. It's very wicked, very wrong. Thus, you could see why they were under a trial. So there's a lot of difficulties here. These were the rich men being referenced here, the ones who were oppressing God's people, the ones who were dragging them into court saying, well, you couldn't meet your bills. You didn't make good in your obligations. I let you borrow this much. You didn't pay up. You might say, well, you don't even pay me enough to, to pay my bills. Well, that's just your choice. I'm going to take your stuff now to make it even. I mean, the whole thing's just a racket almost. They're in this. They're under this. There's persecution on top of that. They're blaspheming God's name. And yet this is the rich person, the rich Gentile, unsaved, perhaps owner, businessman who walks into their assembly. Maybe he's looking for employees. Maybe he's looking for more folks to help with his operation. And because the Jew, in his moment of trial, says, if I just had a tenth of what he has, I'd be out of this mess. He makes a decision based on the face, and it kind of plays up to the rich while he despises and dishonors the poor. So James is not saying that rich people inherently are wicked and bad. In fact, it's not money that's the problem. It's the love of money. Are you with me? There are many rich people who love God, who employ people and do fabulous in, in pursuing God's purposes. So don't read this and say, oh, I guess rich is bad and poor is good. That's not what James is saying. Historically, what he's saying is there are unsaved rich people. There were unsaved rich people who were abusing God's people and yet you play up to them when they pop into your assembly. He says, guys, this is not right. It's showing partiality. And it contradicts God's values. Because you see, God doesn't look at your economic bottom line to see if he's going to use you or to see if he's going to save you. Amen? He doesn't look at your checking account, your 401k, or your portfolio to decide, you know what? I think you've got what it takes to be used in my service. He didn't look at your income, your job, your titles. God doesn't look at that. Watch this. God doesn't just receive the face. He doesn't just look at you and say, oh, this is what I see on the outside in the moment, so I will. That's, that's not what God... God looks deeper at the heart. We know that God uses all kinds of people. He saves all kinds of people. And so when we play up to the rich who are uh, contradicting by their lifestyle and by their manners God's values, we play to them, we actually contradict God's values. So we mistrust God, we contradict His values, and then verses 8 through about 11 show us that we're really disobeying the law. What he does here is he says in verse 8, look with me, If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, which here it is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then you're doing well. He makes a very simple statement that if you do what God says about loving your neighbor, he calls that the royal law. We call it the royal law for this reason. Loving God and loving man seems to be the two summary statements of all the law. So in that way, it's kind of the, the, the essential nature of all the law. It's the royal law. It's the the high, highest law. It's the way they kind of put it into a summary. He just says here, listen, if you fulfill that, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, again, connect back to verse 1. If you receive the face only, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And some Jews must have been thinking this. 
well, this is not that bad. I'm in a tough situation. Surely God's not going to think it's that big a deal if I just receive the face. If I just say, well, maybe you can meet my need because God's not really doing his part, it seems. And what James does here is he says, you know what? Disobeying the law and showing partiality, which, by the way, in the law, Leviticus 19.10 actually talks about this very issue. So if you're a Jew, you would understand what James is mentioning. You would reference, okay, yeah, in the book of Leviticus, there are parts about not showing partiality and having equal assessments based in the right way and showing mercy for the right reason and for the right effect. I mean, this would all come to your mind. And suddenly you'd realize that's part of the law, just like, look what he says here, the commands not to commit adultery and not to murder. Because he makes this point. If you keep the whole law, but you fail in one point, you've become accountable for all of it. You see, the law is not like a set of bowling pins. And we roll the bowling ball and we knock down three and say, well, you know what, I'm, I'm uh, seven-tenths good today. That's not how the law works. The law is like this. The law is like a, a, a pane of glass. And one chip ruins the whole glass. A small crack could shatter the whole thing. And James is saying, if you break even one small point, if you break Leviticus 19.10, but still keep Leviticus 20, not murdering, no adultery, he says the truth is you've then broken God's law, just like those who may have committed adultery or committed murder. And you're accountable to God for it. He's, what he's doing, he's escalating the sin of partiality. You catch that? He's, show, he's, he's elevating the seriousness of the situation. And he's saying, guys, when you show partiality, you not only are mistrusting God because you're trying to get your way through human mechanisms based on external appearances, you're not only contradicting God's values because he uses all kinds of peoples in all kinds of situations for his purposes, you're also disobeying his word. And that's why in verse 12... He gives this clear, unavoidable action point. And by the way, he does, again, use action verbs. I love this about James, doesn't he? So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. That's odd because you think if, you're, if you think if you're judged under a law, how am I to speak and act in that? That seems almost like an odd statement. Like, I don't want to act and speak as someone being judged by a law, but what kind of law is this? It's the law of liberty. Now, I think personally, and I can show you some scriptures that would kind of um, form a thread, that this is a great reference to, I think, the effect of the gospel. There was a law that stood against us, but Jesus Christ came and fulfilled every bit of that law perfectly under God presented that to God, not only in his life, but in his death. God saw that, and in the resurrection, declared himself to be satisfied. He rent the curtain in two, showing his wrath was appeased, fulfilled. And so you and I are no longer judged by a law that we can't fulfill. We are now seen through a Savior who has fulfilled every bit of it. So the law that God, that, Jesus, that God the Son fulfilled in sacrifice to God the Father, watch this, has actually freed you to, and I'm going to say this, listen very carefully, to obey the law. What? Yeah. Christ's complete fulfillment of everything that God demanded has freed you not to live licentiously and selfishly, but to live an obligation to God under His law to do what? To love Him and love others. The royal law. In fact, Galatians 5 spells this out. Galatians 5 talks about how we're not under the law. We've been set free and don't get entangled again. But then he comes around verse 13 and says, but by the way, you've not been set free to do anything you want to do to live selfishly, carnally. You've been set free, and he uses this exact word, you've been set free to serve one another. Galatians 5. So guys, when he talks here about speaking and acting as those who will be judged under the law of liberty, man, we're held to a law that says, wow, you're free from condemnation. 
but you're not free from expectation. And what is the expectation? That we would love God and love others, the royal law. But what drives this? Not the fact that one day, oh my goodness, I hope I've loved enough. I hope I didn't violate one point. We already have, but Jesus didn't. And so his fulfillment frees us. We've been freed by the law of liberty. Mercy at the cross. Mercy triumphed over judgment in the greatest way. And as a result, we get to live in, in freedom, serving each other. Not trying to make sure we keep enough points with God. Which is why I think he ends with this beautiful phrase, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. If you live in a way, and I think he's here giving a proverb, by the way. He's just kind of in, in a kind of a, a wise way saying this is kind of how life works. If you live in such a way that you're going to extract your decisions, you're going to make your investments based on only what you see on the outside, the face, then don't be surprised if that's what happens to you. And then he makes this four-word phrase that we love, mercy triumphs over judgment. I think he's thinking here of the final mercy win at the cross. When God did not ignore justice, by the way, but he met justice through Jesus Christ and he let you and me, he let us be the, the ones who benefit. And so now in light of this benefit of the gospel, of the grace of God, we live, what, under the law of liberty, free to serve each other. So the three sections, the three statements, the three areas are quite simple. The first one says what we're not to do, verses 1 through 4. Don't show partiality. Verses 5 through 11, why? Because you're mistrusting God, contradicting His values, and disobeying His word. What should we do? We should speak and act as gospel-centered people, knowing that we, we have only been freed because someone met the law and was gracious to us by His own mercies. So let's live in that way. Now let me make a note here. Verse 13 is not a command to ignore justice. My kids love verse 13 when they were little. Julie laughed because she remembers these days. They would be in trouble. And one would say, well, mercy wins over judgment. You know, like, don't spank me. Have mercy. You know, if you're here and you're a kid, great idea, by the way. It works sometimes. You get to your parents' heart. They get a lump in their throat. And sometimes they do ignore justice. And they just, I don't have time. Forget it. We'll, we'll you know, that's a confession of a, of a parent right there, isn't it? This is not a verse to ignore justice. It is a verse that commands showing mercy in the right way. And this verse has been misused to say, well, see, mercy wins over judgment, so forget judgment. Forget justice. Forget making the right decision. Just say, I'll let it pass. That's not mercy and that's not justice. What this verse is calling us to do is show mercy in the right way, which is what this, watch this, without favoritism. Because the point of the chapter is you're, you're looking at the face only, you have no sense, apparently, of God's values or of His purposes or how He works. And so you only make your decisions based on what you see. And then you kind of either do this or do that. Give mercy, give judgment. That's just a completely uh, unstable approach. Instead, be willing to let mercy win and yet be willing to seek justice. Do both, but do them in the right way. Show mercy for the right reason with the right result. Eventually, he says here, we can live that way ultimately because we have been shown that very kind of mercy. The kind of mercy that ultimately won even though justice was done because Jesus Christ gave his life and his death in complete fulfillment of the law that we were required to keep. So there was justice, but yet there was mercy. A lot can be said here. I just want you to kind of see these three sections. What we shouldn't do, why we shouldn't do it, and instead what we should do. All right? Now here's two strong suggestions for you in light of this chapter. These won't be on the screen behind me. You want to write them down, talk about them later if you can. 
But two strong suggestions in light of these three simple paragraphs, these three simple sections about partiality. Which, by the way, if you're curious, what is the problem with partiality? The problem with partiality is it betrays our theology. That's the simple, succinct understanding. And I don't want to preach for 45 minutes and you not have the simple answer to the message. The problem with partiality is that it betrays our theology. It says, I trust God in spite of what I see. See, that's what our theology says. Partiality says, I'm not trusting God, and because of what I see, I'll trust man. That's partiality. So here are two strong suggestions to help us not betray our theology, but to live out what we say we believe. First of all, learn the difference between partiality and discernment. Nowhere in this text does James call us to be undiscerning. He calls us to show what? No partiality, which is, as we understand the text, making decisions based on man's appearances, just receiving the face. But discernment is making decisions, investments, evaluations based on God's values. And that is okay. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians that the godly man, he will discern all things. But the godly man does not use man's appearances to do that. What does he use? God's values. In this text, I think the one he's talking about is that God can use anyone at any time for his purposes, regardless of their economic level. Here's a classic case of when this happened. You may remember, you may not. Not everyone's always at the same level with their Bible knowledge. I'll just tell you this brief story about David, Israel's greatest king. Before he was anointed king, this is in the book of 1 Samuel, he was just a shepherd. And a lot of you know the story, you're already ahead of me, but not everyone knows this story. So for those who are recently saved or just come to Christ or those who are perhaps never been in church or maybe they're just here kind of skeptical of this whole Christianity thing, they're listening. Here's how the Bible just weaves together and is so consistent. In the Old Testament, 1 Samuel, God is looking for a new king because Saul, by the way, was appointed as a king so that Israel could be like the other nations. That was their carnal desire. And so they chose a king. Initially, Saul, who was head and shoulders above others, he had the look of the other nation's kings. Interesting, isn't it? I mean, they looked at the face and said, wow, Saul, you got what we think we're after. We don't know what's in your heart, but man, you got the look, bro. So Saul's king, and God says, I'll let you have the full weight of your sinful desires. So God's sovereignty is in play. Man's responsibility is in play. Well, Saul eventually becomes what he really is in spite of how good he looked. God anoints a new king, a shepherd. His name is David. But when Samuel went to anoint this king, even though Saul was still officially reigning, they went ahead and they were going to anoint David and he was going to take the throne later. When Samuel went to do this, they brought seven brothers into the house and lined them up. And Samuel... And he was a godly man, a prophet. He said, okay, it's got to be one of you seven. The father did the same thing, and the seven brothers are in the same boat. We're all thinking, man, these are the, these are the brothers that will surely take Saul's throne. I mean, they're good-looking guys. They're stout, they're strong. This is the kind of person who would be king for sure. At the end of that story, none of them were the one. So Samuel says, well, do you have any other sons? <laughs> and the father says, yeah, I, I got this kid out in the field. <laughs> He's not king material. He's a shepherd. But guess who God had anointed to be king? You're with me, aren't you? The shepherd boy. And it's within that story that we hear this phrase, which our culture uses, but often they don't know where they got it. Here's where this phrase comes from. Man looks on the what? Outward. But God looks on the heart. You see, a lot of times our world will use that and they have no idea where it came from. That came from a biblical story about true discernment based on God's values, not partiality based on man's values. So I want to make sure you're clear on something. We will obey 
this verse, and we will show no partiality. So whether you're going to South Asia, David Nelson and I are going there tomorrow morning. We'll be in that same region in the video. We'll be around a lot of people really different than us. No partiality. We're not going to judge by the face, whether it's in Ankeny, Iowa, and you meet a lot of different people here. We're not going to, in our church, judge by the face. We're not going to make our decisions just based on what we see. Your economic level, your address, whether you like certain foods or don't, whether you're large or small, fat or skinny, what your hobbies are, your preferences, whether you eat organic or don't eat organic, whether you like range-free or cage-free or whether you work out or don't work out. Can I go through any more lists for you? All of those things, guess what? They're all externals. And they're not going to be the determining factor whether we say, oh, God can't use you. Oh, he will use you. That's not happening in this church. That's just receiving the face. And there's something deeper always going on in God's economy. But we will encourage you to be discerning, which is to make your decisions and investments based on God's values. Okay? So don't expect us to walk out here today saying, well, man, don't ever judge. Don't ever discern. I don't even believe that. I believe it's right for godly people to discern and to judge. But you must discern and judge the right way using God's values, not man's externals. Clear enough? So, there's your first strong suggestion. Learn the difference between partiality, that's man's externals, and discernment, that's God's values. Second strong suggestion. Live up to the law of liberty, not down to the law of lists. A few minutes ago, I just kind of rambled off a number of lists. Now, I may have gotten some of those phrases wrong because I'm totally not aware of all the lists in this room. But I guarantee you, there's a lot of lists in this room. And did you know that your list may be a good list, but it should be a list. If it's not in the Bible, it should be a list for you. I'm going to be blatantly clear here. Okay? If you can't take the Bible and say... Here's what God's Word calls all of us to do. Then, man, enjoy your list. Go for it. If your conscience and the Holy Spirit are leading you in X direction, go for it. But don't strap that list on my back or on someone else's back unless you can say, hey, here's what God's Word says to all of us. Now, is there, are there times when wisdom is appropriate? Common sense and... and um, deferring so that other people aren't affected wrongly. Sure, I get, all, I get all that. I'm with you on that. But we're not, if we're not careful, we're going to... Christendom in general, at least in America, is, is teetering, bordering on creating an immense amount of lists that real Christians have to follow. That scares me a little bit. Because it's living down to the law of lists, not up to the law of liberty. You see, we've been set free, Galatians 5 says, not to pursue our own desires to live for ourselves. We've been set free to serve each other. And it is not beneficial or edifying in serving someone to then bring them my list and say, by the way, did you know that these 17 things are actually signs of really good believers? Jason, did you know that? Have you read my list of 17 things? Can I meet with you over coffee and talk about them? Because, man, you're really falling short, dude. It's like, like, that's not the law of liberty. That's not serving him. Now, I just want to, I just need to make sure you understand that. We need to live up to the law of liberty. We've been set free so that we can serve. So I might go to Jason. We might have honest talks about how to best parent, how to be the best kind of husband, employee. We can talk about these things. At the end of the day, the only thing that says we both have to do something is when God's Word says it. Beyond that, I say, man, I'm going to pray for you as you seek God's will and as you seek to live out what He's called you. I'm praying for you. He does that for me. So we have an honest talk, good conversation. We push each other. I'm, I'm with all that. But I don't take my list and put it on his back unless God's word says it. Does that make sense, guys? See, that's serving each other. That's not living down to the law of list. Now, I want to answer a question here. 
How do you know if you're living down the law of lists? How do you know if that's happening? I think Galatians 5, which talks about this whole idea of living up to the law of liberty and not down the law of list, I think it gives us a clue. Because after he talks about what the law of liberty does for us, he says, if you don't live this way, watch out as you bite and devour one another because you will eventually be consumed by one another. He goes right to how we use our words how we use our tongue, which, by the way, is James's next topic in chapter 3. <laughs> and I think the first telltale sign that someone's living down to the law of lists and not up to the law of liberty is when their words are consistently critical and condemning about everyone else just doesn't get it. No one else is really where I am. No one eats as well as me. No one works out like me. No one is as disciplined as me. I mean, suddenly, like, they're the standard and not Jesus, and we're all trying to climb up to their level. That's a problem. That's living down to the law of list. And if right now you're squirming and you're worried, like, oh, man, that is me. That, he's described my, the muscle between these two lips. What you've actually done, watch this, is you are showing partiality. You're looking at people and you're making estimations about who they are and their value to God's kingdom based on what you see. You receive the face only, and then you see, well, I'll, I'll invest in the people who can give me what I want. I'll spend time with those who can help me further what I'm after. You're doing exactly what James 2 talks about. You're showing partiality instead of being discerning and trusting God. So my two strong suggestions would be learn the difference between partiality and discernment, and then Live up to the law of liberty. Serve people in love. Don't live down to the law of lists. Let's put this in one take-home truth, can we? In fact, would you read it with me? Here's the simple sentence by which I think we can kind of take all these verses. We'll put a handle on all these verses and take it home this together. Ready? Here we go. Shoe leather theology means because I trust God completely, I will love others impartially treating them in a manner based upon God's values, not man's externals. That's what we're committing to. And that's what God's Word calls us to. Living with an impartial yet discerning approach to people. Yes, not just the ones in South Asia or Europe or Australia or even the south or the north or the west, but even the ones right here in the Midwest, right here in Iowa, right here in Ankeny, right here at First Family Church, those who are really different than you and come into our assembly, don't make your investments, evaluations, decisions based only on what you see in their face. Be discerning, not partial. And know that God can use anyone for any reason for His purposes. Let's take two questions if we have them in, can we? Does God show partiality when it comes to salvation since he chooses some over others? And did he show favoritism towards Israel over other nations? No, God does not show partiality when it comes to salvation. First of all, God, it's impossible for God to commit this sin, right? So what God does show is sovereign selection to accomplish his ordained means, excuse me, his ordained purposes, okay? So I would say, and I don't think this person asked this question to uh, indict God, so don't hear this wrong, but I think we have to be careful that we don't say, well, then God's being partial. God can't be partial. He's God. It's impossible for God to sin. It's impossible for God to lie. God can do no impartial, uh, excuse me, God can do no partial thing. Like he, he can't. He can't show a favoritism. But God does, in light of his ultimate goal to save to himself a people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue, he has selected by his own sovereign right the way to do that. And he did that by beginning with the nation of Israel, Abraham. So, that, yeah, I, I don't think God's been partial at all. He's simply been sovereignly selective, and he has the right to do that because he is what? He's God. But in that, he did not sin, he has not sinned, nor will he ever sin. It's a good question. hope it's a clear enough answer. Let's take one more, can we all? 
Is there a good passage to reference in the context? Oh, is this a good passage to reference in the context of racism? I think it could be one that could be used principally, I think, uh, because there were probably historically two races going on here. There were the Jews being persecuted and the Gentiles who were the ones probably doing much of the oppression. So you probably could use this. I want to make sure, though, that I think the main thing, and Chris brings this out in your compass this week, this is primarily an economic passage. It's primarily showing favoritism to those who are rich and then shunning the poor because you think the rich can meet your need in the middle of the trial you're in. Does that make sense? I think that's what's happening. And the rich are, probably in this case, historically, they're going to be the Gentiles who are unbelievers. So you might could get there secondarily. But I, so yes, I'd say to the question, possibly yes, but more textually you'll need to say this is probably more of an economic passage. I would rather use the one, I think it's in Colossians or Galatians, forgive my brief lapse of memory there, when Jesus when Paul writes that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek nor bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. I think that's one of our best passages to speak against racism, all right, or class societies like that. This one here is primarily economic, but you can get to the racism part in a secondary manner. Before we close, before, as we wrap up and move to our responsive time, I want to share this one last thing with you. I saw this play out most Notably, when I was in college, uh, we had a youth group of about 100 junior hires. I was about 20 years old, and I preached my heart out every Sunday night to them. I preached my heart out every Wednesday night to them. We did activities. I was single. Man, I just was all into junior high youth ministry. I loved it. And our youth group was within a church, within a Christian school, and so we had a kind of a bubble effect going. We were in uh, Chattanooga, so we had a city. We loved that city, but the truth was we almost felt sheltered. Like we lived within the Christian school, which was within a really good church. Our church had like 7,000 in it. So you could almost go to kindergarten and graduate seminary and never know that there was a world who was dying and going to hell right around you. That wasn't the intent, and it wasn't meant, but you almost had this bubble effect. You know what I'm saying? Well, as a junior high youth pastor, I, I could see this happening. Man, these junior hires, they, they love God, but they have no idea that there are people all around them who are different than they are, lost. And so I kept thinking, how can, I, how can I show them that people matter, that God's values matter, that just because someone's different and, and, and may not be where they are doesn't mean they're not worthy of the gospel message. And So I, I talked to our youth leaders, and we had this outing. And it was going to be outside in a kind of a remote area and had a, like a shed building. We we're going to invite all the youth group to bring all their friends, kind of the typical outreach event. And I had one of our youth leaders dress up, and he was a freshman in college, so he looked young, and he, I said, I need you to make yourself look even younger. I need you to look really dirty and kind of rotten, and I need you to look really, really look wicked and pagan and lost. So they dirtied him up, messed his hair up, got some kind of wig. They did all kind of things, and they got, you know, cigarette packs, put him in his sleeves, rolled him up. They did everything they could to make him look like, this kid is trouble, right? We did everything we could on the outside to make you think that. We want you to receive his face like, wow, don't get near me. Had the event, he shows up. He's really a youth leader, but no one picked him out. It worked perfect. No one could even recognize him. And I, by the way, I had a lot of parents mad at me, but it was worth it. <laughs> so um, we have the event. I get up at the end. Hey, so, so glad you came. We just share with you a little bit. And then I said, in fact, I think I'll just have uh, our, one of our guests share because this is all about, your, about guests and just reaching out and I noticed we have a guest that hardly anybody talked to him. And boy, immediately all the junior hires are getting nervous. Like, man, Todd has never done this. He never gives up speaking time. What's he doing, you know? And how's this working? And, and so I said, I think, uh, aren't you? And I'll forget what name we used, you know. Joe, uh, Joe, can you come to the front? So Joe gets up. So he's walking to the front. And man, it is, you could just feel the tension and nervousness. He gets to the front and he takes off this hair thing they'd made for him kind of wipes his face, and it's Michael Grinnell, their youth leader. They're, they're just staring at him like, we know that guy. But we acted like we didn't want to get to know that guy. <laughs> he shared a little bit about not showing partiality. I talked a little bit about it. 
And I, I, I remember that day watching our junior high youth group change in how they received people in the assembly. It didn't last forever, but for a few months, maybe a year or so, I remember when, when we would have youth group, man, all the junior highs were watching the door, and then we would see someone that looked like, well, you're obviously not from around here. They made it be like, okay, let's see if it's somebody that actually really know, you know. <laughs> They're kind of checking them out. Can I, can I be frank with you? It drove home the point perfectly. But too often, we do receive the face only. And as a result, we disobey God, mistrust Him, and contradict His values. How much better it would be to discern using God's values that God can use anybody for any reason. Let's not let anyone be outside of the, of the sound and sight of a gospel-centered life showing mercy for the right reason and right result, okay? That's living without partiality. Let's pray. Lord, make us gospel-centered people who live in a way that doesn't betray our theology. This is what partiality does. We say we've been set free to serve people. And yet, often we receive the face in such a way as to make a decision on who we're serving based on only what we see. And we choose wrongly. We choose unwisely when we only decide based on our external opinions. All around us, Heavenly Father, are people. Yes, different. Not just racially, but in lots of other ways. Lord, I pray you'll protect us and guard us from thinking that, that that's what we should use to, to make our decision. Instead, give us a heart like yours. Instill your values in us so that we see ourselves as able and willing and competent to serve people in your name without any partiality to where they are economically, where they live geographically, and a host of other things we might throw on there as filters. Lord, this is how you loved us. When we were still sinners, John affirms that you loved the world and gave yourself for it. John later affirmed that you died for the sins of the whole world. So Heavenly Father, I thank you that as we remember you now in communion, we're not remembering a partial God. We're not remembering a a Christ who died with favoritism in his mind. Remembering the sacrifice of Jesus by which now you are completely and eternally satisfied with us. You have freed us by the one who has fulfilled every part of the law. And so that very law that should have condemned us, it now actually, through Christ, we are free to serve under it to love you and love others. God, give us a heart to do that based on your values, not man's externals. Stand with me, would you, First Family? As you go to the tables this morning, they're on your left or right, they're behind you, in front of you. Would you do this? Would you take the elements? And would you thank the Lord that he was not partial with you but showed you mercy based on his justice with Christ that you benefited from Jesus' righteousness even while you were in the middle of all of your sin mercy won over judgment would you in light of that say Lord help me to speak
and act in light of that law. The one that has actually now freed me to serve us.